How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One from the Commonwealth Club, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. Today we're discussing food and the global economy with U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack and U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Michael Froman. I'm Greg Dalton. The Obama administration is pushing to advance two of its priorities before the end of the year, a free trade deal with Asia and a farm bill that steers American food and agriculture for the next five years. Both efforts are controversial in Washington and around the country. Over the next hour, we will discuss the future of food and trade in the era of increasing severe weather that is driven by burning of fossil fuels. Along the way, we'll include live questions from our audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Prior to becoming America's top trade envoy, Michael Froman served as assistant to the President for International Economic Affairs. He also worked for a number of years at Citigroup. Tom Vilsack was governor of Iowa from 1999 until 2007 and previously was a member of the Iowa State Senate. Please welcome Ambassador Froman and Secretary Vilsack to the Commonwealth Club. <laughs> Secretary Vilsack, let's begin with you. Tell us about the Farm Bill and why it's important. A lot of people, if you're not in agriculture, you don't know about the Farm Bill. Tell us about it and why it's important. Well, the, the Farm Bill is more than a farm bill. Uh, it is a food bill because it provides assistance for struggling families, but it also assures that America has a great diversity uh, and affordability of food, that we remain a food-secure nation. It's a jobs bill because it invests in expanded opportunities in rural areas, manufacturing opportunities, for example. Uh, it's an infrastructure bill uh, because we invest in water projects, uh, in utility lines, in broadband expansion. It's a trade bill uh, because it contains trade promotion programs to allow us to continue uh, to export American agricultural products around the world. Uh, we enjoyed a record year in exports. Uh, it's a conservation bill. Uh, in this particular bill, it's going to streamline conservation programs uh, that will allow us to have better uh, soil health and, and, and better quality and quantity of water. Uh, and it's also a reform bill. Uh, this particular bill will substantially reduce the amount we spend uh, in, in uh, the, the farm supports by eliminating the direct payment program uh, and focusing more on uh, crop insurance and other risk management tools. So it's a, it's a very expansive bill. Uh, and often doesn't get fully appreciated by by Americans because it does impact every single one of us. The these bills happen every five years. Uh, earlier this year, uh, it was extended for a year as part of the fiscal cliff negotiations. And my understanding is, if it doesn't pass by January, we go back to the 1940s to, in terms of some prices, et cetera. So, is it going to get done? Well, it needs to get done. Uh, it needs to get done for the benefits uh, that it can have for rural America. While we've had the best farm economy in the last five years, probably in the history of the country, uh, rural America has not uh, done as well. Uh, we've had uh, a population loss, and we've had, continued to have persistent poverty. So this is an opportunity for us to address some of those concerns in rural America. Uh, if we don't get it done before the end of the year, then, as you indicated, permanent law comes into place, and the USDA will start purchasing commodities, uh, milk, cheese, butter, at highly inflated prices because of the nature of permanent law, which will create shortages in the grocery store and higher prices for consumers. Nobody wants that, and, and it doesn't have to happen. Uh, we need to get this done. Ambassador Froman, another thing that the administration wants to get done uh, before the end of the year is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Tell us what that is. Well, uh, thanks, Greg. And first of all, it's nice to be back in the Bay Area. I was born and raised across the Bay, and it's always nice to come back here. You know, we are engaged now in the negotiation of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a free trade agreement with 12 countries constituting about 40% of the global economy. And we're also engaged in negotiation with Europe for an agreement. We're also engaged in trying to reduce tariffs on information technology products, trying to open up services markets, trying to facilitate trade at the border and get rid of unnecessary costs and delays for products at the border. Uh, when I come back to the Bay Area, I'm, I'm reminded just how much California benefits from all this. In fact, no state benefits more from exports than California. It's the number one exporter, including in agriculture, but across a lot of products, exports about a quarter of a trillion dollars in goods and services each year. And there are literally hundreds of thousands of jobs in California tied to and supported by exports. 
And that's what it's all about. What we're trying to do through the Trans-Pacific Partnership is open up markets in some of the fastest-growing regions of the world, raising standards on labor, on environment, on access to medicines, on intellectual property rights, creating new disciplines for the 21st century global economy. For example, there's been the emergence of state-owned enterprises around the world that have a dramatic impact on the ability of our firms, our private firms, to compete. So trying to create disciplines for state-owned enterprises, trying to make sure small and medium-sized businesses, which are really the drivers of growth and the drivers of exports, including in our country, have the ability to participate in the global economy and to export more of their products. We work across manufactured goods, services, and we very, work very closely with Secretary Vilsack and USDA on, on the export of agricultural products, breaking down barriers to American agricultural products. And again, California, I think exports was at $23 billion a year. It's an all-time high, all-time high of U.S. agricultural exports. It's a key part of what's driving our economy here. Our exports are driving about a third of our, of our growth in this country right now. And the only way that we can keep up with that is to keep on opening markets making sure we have a level playing field that we can compete on, and then making sure that we enforce our trade rights, and that's what we're doing. Republicans and Democrats don't agree on much these days, but they do agree that they don't want to grant uh, fast-track authority to the Obama administration on this trade deal. Three-quarters of the House Democrats uh, are opposed, including the leadership, George Miller, a lot of them, including 19 Democrats who voted for the Korea-U.S. trade pact. So... How are you going to get around that if well, Congress doesn't grant you fast-track authority? Sure. What trade promotion authority is, is the, the mechanism that every Congress since 1974 has given every president since 1974, Republican and Democrat. And it's the, it's the pr- mechanism by which Congress tells the president what to negotiate, what the negotiating objectives are, how to work with Congress during the negotiations, what the consultation procedure is, and then what the process is for approving or disapproving the agreement at the end of the day. Right now, there isn't a trade promotion authority bill out there on the table yet. Uh, you know, we, we wouldn't support the old trade promotion authority from 2002 either, which is what that letter is about. We want to make sure that trade promotion authority reflects the, not only our interests, but our values, labor, environment, access to medicines, intellectual property rights, disciplines on state-owned enterprises. These are all things that are new since the last grant of, of trade promotion authority, and it's something that we're very much looking forward to working with Congress to make sure it gets done. Another concern is, is secrecy, that it's being done in secret, that Congress is not informed, that there's 600 or so corporations, entities that are that can see the draft of this. The, part of it was leaked on WikiLeaks recently. So what can you say to the concerns about secrecy of the process? Well, this is the most transparent trade negotiation uh, there's ever been, and uh, which doesn't mean that we can't always do better, by the way. And we're always looking for ways to see what we can do to do better. So, for example, um, uh, we, before we table any proposal at the negotiation, we preview it with our congressional committees and with other committees, Agriculture Committee on Agricultural Issues, but Ways and Means and Finance Committee on all of the issues. We have had 1,083 briefings on the Hill on TPP alone, 1,083 briefings. We've met with scores of individual offices. So I think there's actually been quite a bit of congressional input and congressional review of what it is we're doing. But we haven't stopped there. I mean, one thing new we've done with TPP is we've actually organized that at every round of negotiations, we organize an event for stakeholders. And we've had hundreds of stakeholders come, and we've given them the opportunity and structure to program so they can present not just to us, but to the, the negotiators from the other 11 countries as well, so that all 12 countries are hearing the input of our stakeholders. You mentioned the 600 cleared advisors. Uh, Congress established these committees to represent a wide range of interests. There are a lot of, of interests from businesses there, but also every single major labor union is represented. We have environmental groups, consumer groups, public health groups. So we have a wide range of groups that are also part of this process, but we're not limited to listening to those groups. We, have, we take in meetings from, from all possible stakeholders, uh, whether it's Internet rights groups or public health groups, uh, gen- generic uh, companies, Whatever companies want to come in and see us, whatever interest groups want to come in and see us, we have a process for including their input into our negotiations. I'd like to talk about the intersection of trade and, and agriculture. In, in 2010, uh, Russia suspended uh, exports, fourth largest grain exporter because of severe droughts and floods. 
in 2008, Secretary Vilsack, we had rationing of rice from Sam's Club in Costco in the United States because partly because of floods, uh, droughts in Australia. The IPCC, International Group of Scientists, have warned about the impact of climate on food production. Are we going to see more scarcity and volatility in international agricultural markets as the weather gets weirder? Well, I tell you, what we're trying to do at USDA is to prepare for uh, our agricultural producers to be able to continue to maximize productivity. Uh, we're establishing a series of climate change hubs, regional hubs, which will be aligned with universities and agriculture to sort of look at each region of the country and determine what is being grown, how uh, climate change will impact and affect the growth of that over the long haul. We have a tendency in Washington, I think, to talk in terms of one-year and five-year cycles in agriculture, one year for a budget, five years for a farm bill. But we really need to be looking at 25, 30, 40, 50 years out. And these, uh, these regional hubs will be, basically allow us to do that. They'll allow us to identify specific opportunities for us to help producers mitigate uh, the impact of it, uh, adverse weather conditions. And we just announced a drought resiliency effort uh, as well, where we'll be collaborating with federal agencies to take a look at ways in which we can mitigate and minimize the damage that drought can take place. We have a global research alliance that we've aligned ourselves with, uh, 30 other countries in the United States, and we are basically coordinating research in livestock and crop production and rice uh, to make sure that we are uh, ahead of the game, if you will, in order to try to minimize the kind of volatility that can occur when shortages occur. I I can't guarantee that we're not going to have shortages, but I can guarantee you that we are very focused on making sure that we are in a position to adapt and mitigate as best as possible. 2012, there were some record droughts that really hit production. Uh, is that connected to climate change? Do I know you're, you're not a scientist, but do the farmers connect that with climate change? Well, I think the, the farmers recognize uh, that they need to be prepared for any kind of weather condition. And that's one of the things about farming is that it's, it's just extraordinary risk associated with it. I mean, you can be the very best farmer in the world. You can do everything right in planting a crop. You can invest your hard-earned uh, resources in your livelihood, but the reality is if Mother Nature decides not to have it rain or have it rain too much, it can wipe out your entire crop. What's interesting uh, about last year's drought was that despite the fact it was the worst drought we had in 80 years, uh, corn production was, at a, a, it was within the top 10 corn crops in the country's history. Uh, and so that's essentially working with technology, working with farmers, making them better uh, able to deal with with adverse weather conditions by the way in which they plant their crop, when they plant it, how they plant it, how they cultivate it and tend it, uh, you can minimize an impact uh, of a drought. Now, um, We're not talking about Mother Nature anymore. We're talking about human tinkering with the climate system, right? The the, the reality is, well, no, it is really about understanding how we can use conservation techniques, for example, uh, to maintain moisture. Uh, We're beginning to see a reemergence, and we're supporting this at USDA, of cover crops, uh, the opportunity for us to basically have multiple crops during the cropping year uh, that will allow us to retain moisture and nutrients in the soil and, and make it a little bit more resilient, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we're doing the same thing in the forest area as well. We're trying to focus on resiliency uh, and trying to equip our farmers with the latest and, and best information on how they can be more resilient to changing climate. There's no question. We can debate what's causing it. But there's no question that it is changing. It's no question that we're dealing with warmer temperatures and that and more intense storms and weather patterns. And so we have got to be in a position to respond to that. We face a huge global challenge of increasing food production by 70 percent in the next 40 years with less water, with more intense weather patterns. It is going to require a global commitment uh, to research, to science, uh, and to make sure that we are identifying best practices and making sure that information is shared and readily available, and we're trying to do that through USDA through a variety of activities. Ambassador Froman, how is climate disruption going to affect trade patterns and trade? Is that part of the discussion? Well, environmental issues generally are very much part of the discussion at the U.S. behest. We've been trying to add environmental issues to the agenda. And, for example, in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we're for the first time trying to take on certain conservation issues that are specific to this region, issues like illegal logging or overfishing and the subsidization of overfishing um, or trafficking, wild, uh, trafficking of wildlife, of endangered species and other, and other wildlife, and trying to use the, the TPP as a mechanism for getting countries to cooperate together to try and uh, put disciplines on those practices that are having an adverse effect on the environment. So we think that, again, our trade agreements ought to reflect both our interests and our values, and that's something the President has felt very strongly about, and that includes labor and, and the environment and public health. 
In 2009, uh, I believe it's your hometown, Pittsburgh, uh, the group of uh, G20 uh, pledged to reduce fossil fuel subsidies. That was before the Copenhagen summit. I haven't heard much about that lately. Ambassador Froman, is that still a goal to reduce and levelize fossil fuel subsidies in international trade? Uh, it is. And I, I used to be involved in the G20, so I'm, I'm delighted that you found that in your archives. Uh, yes, no, we've got global agreement uh, for countries to try and do this. And it started with the G20, then the APEC countries around all of Asia Pacific also agreed to do it. And, you know, it's a long-term process because for a lot of these countries, it's very painful to start reducing the subsidies, raising energy prices. It it leads to social unrest at times. And we've had to try and work with countries through the World Bank and others to make sure they've got the social safety nets in place so that the, the people who most need the subsidies in a society, the poorest people, the most vulnerable people, are still able to get the energy they need. One of the, the, the tragedies about fossil fuel subsidies generally, not only that it leads to the overuse of fossil fuels, but the vast majority of the subsidies go to people who don't need them. They go to companies or, or people who can afford to pay the full price of fossil fuel. So if countries really want to take care of their poor with fossil fuel subsidies, there's plenty of room to do that while raising the prices and, and discouraging the overuse of fossil fuels. And we're trying to use all these mechanisms like the G20, like APEC, and, and like other mechanisms like that to try and encourage countries to do that. But safe to say that no subsidies have been uh, disbanded or, or diminished yet? In, in no, that's not safe to say that. There are a number of countries that have actually raised their prices on fuel. Take India, which has raised prices on diesel and a number of other fuels. Uh, it's happening in Russia now, which is one of the main subsidizers of fossil fuels. So there are a lot of countries that, for their own reasons, whether it's fiscal, environmental, public health or otherwise, see the value in reducing the subsidies, raising them to the prices of fuel closer and closer to global market prices, and retargeting that money towards better purposes. So as fossil fuel prices raise, what does that mean for agricultural trade and trade in general? Because a lot of the whole trade is really premised on cheap fossil fuels. Secretary Vilsack, does it make sense for us, California, to export uh, refrigerated uh, raspberries and strawberries to Asia if uh, fossil fuel prices increase? Well, I, I think there are uh, several uh, responses to that. First of all, uh, we are developing technologies that don't necessarily require quite as much energy as they used to in terms of uh, crop uh, preservation uh, and in terms of being able to transport crops uh, overseas without using as much energy, number one. Number two, we are obviously looking at ways in which we can expand uh, and and diversify our energy portfolio so it is less reliant on fossil fuels. Um, You know, you and I mentioned before the the show started today uh, that we're really focused on wood energy, uh, the ability to take the diseased wood that we have very – way too much of in the western part of the United States, do a better job of removing that diseased wood and and converting it into energy. It's going to burn. It's just a matter of whether it burns in a positive way or a negative way. Uh, And so that's why we're heavily involved in in research projects. So we're trying to make sure that we get those opportunities out. Uh, We're obviously looking at ways in which we can make agriculture more efficient. Um, And I mentioned cover crops, and that's, that's one of the strategies for making agriculture more efficient. Uh, so there, there are a multitude of ways to deal with this, um, and, and I, you know, agricultural trade is very important to American farmers. Uh, we are a food secure nation. Uh, we basically can produce everything we need to feed our own people, uh, but because we've become so efficient, we, we actually produce more than we need, and so we are providing it to the rest of the world. Uh, the ambassador mentioned jobs. Uh, agricultural trade supports about a million jobs at home. Uh, and it helps to stabilize farm prices so that we can keep people on the land and keep people uh, populating those rural communities that are important to this country. I'd like to get to local and organic in a minute, but first, Ambassador Froman, the idea of will trade decrease as fossil fuel prices increase, or will just the price of price of trade go up? Will, will it change the economics of trade because it's all the whole system is predicated on cheap, subsidized, as we just talked about, fossil fuels. Well, there are subsidies that are applied in a number of areas. The biggest subsidies, one season fuel, are are setting electricity prices at way below market prices in developing countries. Mm-hmm. That's where the bulk of the fossil fuel subsidies are, and that's where the progress, I think, is being made to raise those to make it a more rational, a rational pricing uh, system. You know, I, I think there's so many factors that go into trade, including the cost of transportation. Um, but they're also we're, our, our trade is also changing. It's it's agricultural products, it's manufactured products. It's also services. It's also digital products. These are fast-growing areas, and, and I spent uh, uh, the morning in, in Silicon Valley today. There are, you know, so many 
innovative products coming out of this state, out of this community, that have the opportunity to make a, a major impact on global markets. And obviously those are less of an issue than fossil fuels, than making sure they have access to markets and that governments aren't putting regulations in such a way as to keep out American products just because, uh, 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 even if they're digital. Let me, let me add to that, that. Uh, be, because it's not just a matter of trading. It's also a matter of making sure that agriculture around the world is as efficient as productive as can be. So we have a Feed the Future initiative that we're working with the State Department and USAID, uh, where we basically are trying to encourage more productivity on the part of farmers all over the world. Uh, we see the opportunity uh, for developing countries to embrace agriculture, to become more productive. They can turn can increase uh, incomes for their people. Middle classes grow. Middle classes desire many of the products that we produce here in the United States. And they are then in a position to begin trading. Uh, we see this, for example, uh, in Afghanistan, where we're trying to promote agriculture that will allow them to trade saffron, uh, apricots, uh, pomegranates uh, to, to India uh, and other countries, creating new income opportunities. And interestingly enough, farmers in Afghanistan, if they embrace those new products, they can actually make more money than if they produce poppy and opium. There is a lot of food trade. There's also uh, a trend these days toward local, slow, organic food. I'd like to get your thoughts both on sourcing locally, if that's something you see growing, and also, yes, let's start there first. Well, in order for the rural economy to to revitalize, we have to move beyond production agriculture and exports. We have to complement that system with additional systems. And one of the systems that we are investing in at USDA is a local and regional food system, the ability to sell directly to a consumer. It allows smaller entrepreneurial activities to get in the game. Uh, It's pretty hard for them to compete in a commodity market, but it's very easy for them to compete in a local uh, to regional uh, market. So we have a program to expand farmers' markets, and only 2,840 more farmers' markets exist today than did four years ago. We have the ability to encourage food hubs. This is an aggregation of locally and regionally sourced food uh, so that you can sell it to institutional purchasers like schools and universities. We have 140 of those that we've helped, uh, and that's tripled the number throughout the United States. There are 107,000 farming operations that are currently involved in direct-to-consumer sales. It's one of the fastest-growing aspects of agriculture. It's 4 to $5 billion in trade opportunities and activity, economic activity, and it supports jobs. Uh, so we are very much involved in this, and we're now getting our schools, uh, our, our, our high schools and our grade schools very much involved in this. In 35 states, we have a farm-to-school program uh, working, and we just recently did a survey and found that nearly 50% of American schools are very interested in being able to source locally. So as you create more of these local and regional food systems, you create job opportunities and small entrepreneurial activities in rural America, and you help to rebuild that and complement production agriculture. And is that providing higher quality uh, food to schools? I read, uh, what, sugar, salt, fat? They talked about schools as kind of a place to dump excess inventory of the of the. Well, those, those days, system. those days are, are, are as much different today than it was a couple of years ago with the passage of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. We at USDA have changed the, the guidelines and standards for school meals. So now we're in a position to encourage more fruits and vegetables, more whole grains and low-fat dairy, and less sodium, sugar, uh, and fat content in the meals. Uh, and we are uh, continuing to purchase surplus products, but they could be blueberries, uh, they could be cherries, they could be oranges, and they have been in the last couple of years. And, and so we are improving the quality not just of the meals, but also of what's being sold in vending machines. With our competitive food rule, we're basically saying, look, we want you to complement this good, nutritious, wholesome food that we're serving with better snack opportunities and options, as well as better a la carte options. So you're seeing a, a, a significant change in the way in which youngsters at school uh, will receive these meals and receive snacks. First Lady's had a big impact on that, as, as we know. You mentioned productivity. Are, are organic farms productive? Well, they are certainly productive, and they are certainly high-value-added. Uh, uh, obviously, organic products sell for significantly more than uh, than basic commodities. Uh, we have about 17,500 certified organic operators in the United States today. Uh, they farm about 1% of America's farmland, and they are responsible for about 4 to 5% of the sales. So you can see if 1% of the land, uh, you know, three to four times uh, uh, in terms of total sales. So it's a value, high value-added proposition. It's a proposition that we're trying to make sure can coexist. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be in a situation today or any day to choose between production methods, our our department is trying to foster coexistence. So we're asking the questions, how does an organic producer 
and a GMO producer live in the same neighborhood, live in the same world? How do they get along? How do they make sure that they uh, don't compromise each other's crops? Uh, and we're working on risk management tools. We're working on maintaining seed varieties. We're working on drift research. Um, and we're creating uh, a dialogue that has been missing in American agriculture for some time. Uh, and frankly, American agriculture has to have that dialogue. It represents less than 1% of America's population, and most people are several generations removed from the farm. And I think it's important for American agriculture to be relevant uh, in terms of political relevance. It's going to be important for us to continue to communicate more effectively to the other 99%. One more question, then I'll get to, uh, to Ambassador Froman. Uh, you mentioned not choosing a bit among uh, conventional organic. Uh, does USDA promote organic? Absolutely. We've uh, established for the first time in this administration uh, its own separate division. Uh, we have uh, substantially increased and, I think, focused on uh, the standards and the, and the brand of organic to make sure that it was strengthened and make sure that it's preserved. We are investing uh, significantly more in research. About $140 million of research has gone into organic research. Uh, we are setting aside $50 million of conservation resources for organic producers. We're expanding our conservation programs to, to encourage tunnel houses, which extend growing seasons for specialty crop producers, many of which are uh, organic. Uh, we are heavily engaged, as the, the ambassador knows, in, in negotiating equivalence agreements okay. with uh, Canada, with the EU, and now Japan to allow our organic uh, products to be sold uh, overseas. That's going to create a huge new opportunity for organic producers. It's still a relatively small Percentage, but it is again a fast-growing aspect uh, of, of 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 food and agriculture in this country, and it helps to revitalize that rural economy. It's entrepreneurial, it's innovative, uh, and I think it's a good complement along with conservation and the bio-based economy. We're building, trying to build a new rural economy. And some people would argue that organics are more resilient because of the crop diversification rather than, than monoculture, et cetera. If you're just joining us, uh, our guest today at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club is U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack and U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Michael Froman. Ambassador Froman, uh, Secretary Vilsack mentioned GMOs. Uh, that's a trade uh, point of trade contention with uh, Asia, some some corn was just rejected by China today, Japan. Europe has different GMO labeling laws in the U.S. How is that going to play out in trade? Well, it's clearly a big issue in, in, uh, in, in the trading world, and different countries will come to different conclusions about what kind of seeds, what kind of products they want in their, in their country. Uh, our position has always been that uh, we encourage countries to develop regulations in accordance with science and to take whatever actions they feel are necessary to protect the health and safety and environment of their people and to do so in a scientifically sound way. And that's the kind of dialogue that we're having with Europeans as, as well as our other trading partners. But people come to it from a different perspective, and if we can have a scientific discussion about it, I think we have the, the possibility of moving forward together. What's the U.S. position on, on at least uh, labeling or, or disclosure uh, there is, we've had some laws, uh, valid initiative here that lost in California. There's been some others around the states. But does the U.S. Have, have a position on France and other places in terms of labeling of GMO products? Well, well, Tom, you know. <laughs> uh, I'll be happy to try to uh, respond to that. The philosophy of labeling in this country has always been basically uh, on nutrition and basically warning of known hazards. Uh, and in that respect, uh, it's difficult to make the case for labeling. However, uh, there is the desire on the part of a lot of folks to know what's in their food. And, I, frankly, I think the conversation we're having uh, in this country is, is a bit misplaced on this issue. Uh, I think we're talking about 20th century technologies in a 21st century world. What, what I have been suggesting and, and what we've started with uh, discussions with the FDA is a process in using potentially QR codes as a way of basically establishing the opportunity for consumers to know but not to create it in a situation that might – that might suggest that there's something wrong with the product. QR codes, we should explain, are those little squiggly uh, squares that you right. see on products that you can... And you can use your smartphone or you can have a scanner at a grocery store that would allow you then to actually have a great deal of information about a product so that consumers that want to know everything would be able to do that. Consumers who aren't as interested won't necessarily uh, need to do it. But it's a way of, I think, potentially establishing a process that bridges the gap between those who believe there is a right to know and those who believe that you don't want to send the wrong message about the safety uh, of a particular uh, food product. 
fracking is a big issue in the United States. Ambassador Froman, uh, a few years ago, it was thought that the United States would be importing natural gas. Now it looks like we're going to be an exporter of natural gas. There's some LNG terminals that turn the pipes around to point the other direction. Um, how is that going to – that's a fairly new thing. Uh, natural gas is not traded like oil in a global market. How is that in terms of a trade issue, uh, natural gas exports? Well, it's really more of an issue for our colleagues at the Department of Energy than it is for – uh, for us at, at the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, the Department of Energy has the authority to decide whether to approve various licenses for people who want to export uh, natural gas. There is a lot of interest in that, and they're working through those those licenses, taking into account all the various factors, including um, uh, the impact on the, on the marketplace. Um, the only real link to, to, to trade is that where we do have free trade agreements with countries that grant us national treatment, it's presumed to be in the national interest to to, to, to allow exports. But that's going to get sorted out largely, I think, by the markets and by a whole series of regulations, environmental regulations, FERC regulations, DOE regulations, that anybody who wants to export natural gas will have to go through before they can do that. Secretary Vilsack, a lot of fracking happens uh, near agricultural lands. There's concerns about water supply contamination. Uh, how much time do you spend thinking about fracking? <laughs> well, I, I think a great deal of time. I spend a lot of time thinking about water. Uh, and the availability of it and the quality of it. Uh, as Ambassador Frum would suggest, some other departments of government may have more of a specific vested interest in those decisions, but what we're trying to do at USDA is to make sure that we provide uh, our farmers and our producers and our landowners with the best available information on how best to utilize scarce water resources and how to conserve water resources. And, and we're also understanding and recognizing that as we maintain our force, uh, that for far too long we have not looked at our forests as the, the conservers and preservers of water that they are. And doing a better job of restoring and making our forests more resilient will obviously increase the, the quantity of water and, and allow it to be uh, available when it needs to be available. It also goes to the whole issue of infrastructure, um, it, which gets a little bit beyond uh, my world. But, we, but I mentioned that we are an infrastructure, the Farm Bill is an infrastructure bill. And the reality is that we've invested in, in, in almost uh, 3,800 water projects uh, throughout the United States as a result of the Farm Bill programs. So if we, we need to invest uh, in more infrastructure and better infrastructure. Uh, we need to better utilize the water resources we have. We have to make our land and our forests more resilient, and that requires us to continue to invest in the science and continue to invest in conservation practices. Cover crops a, a good example. And with precision agriculture, I think we're getting to a point where we might be better at this than we've been. Um, now, we'll let, uh, we'll let the folks in, in EPA and, and Department of Energy talk about the, the, the regulations of, of fracking, but we're going to be focused on making sure that we know how to use water resources effectively, not just here, but also internationally as well. And you mentioned the importance of uh, forests to water. Some uh, logging interests would like to have more logging on federal lands. Uh, is that something that, that you're going to let happen? Well, we established a new forest planning rule, the first forest planning rule since 1982. Uh, and it, we, we reflect the multiple purposes to which forests can be and should be utilized. Part of it is the timber industry, obviously. Part of it is the energy industry. But also part of it is recreation. Outdoor recreation is a huge uh, financial mover uh, in rural communities. It's a $650 billion-plus industry. Uh, and we obviously need to make sure that our forests are, are, are good places for people to recreate because those recreation dollars help to revitalize the rural economy. Uh, I think it's also important that we, uh, that we, that we focus on old growth, that we maintain the old growth, uh, and that requires us to, to take a look at stewardship contracting, take a look at how we better maintain our forests through, uh, through this new forest planning rule and the management uh, decisions that we've made. We've got 155 forests in this country, 90, 193 million acres of forest and grassland areas, which we are very seriously looking at. Uh, and you will probably see more board feed treated, but you'll see it treated in an environmentally appropriate and focused way. We're going to continue to look at ways in which we can expand um, important and critical uh, habitat and, and areas where, uh, where wilderness designations and so forth need to be protected. Uh, but we also, I think, need to recognize that, that these rural communities that are uh, I visited Trinity County, uh, California. Seventy-five percent of that county is, is in forested land. Uh, they were obviously concerned about the lack of economic opportunity coming from that forest. Uh, and we're now in the process of trying to figure out ways in which we can create new opportunities that didn't exist or to expand on opportunities, but to do it in an environmentally appropriate way. 
I interviewed Dave Friedenthal, former governor of Wyoming once, uh, and he said that people in Wyoming would dismiss climate change, but they would come in and talk about the pine bark beetle all day long. Well, the pine bark beetle has devastated forests from the Rocky Mountains up into British Columbia. Uh, it is connected to climate change because of uh, the warming temperatures, the beetles' larvae do not die in the winter. So how will climate affect America's forests? Well, it continues to put a premium on making sure that we, we make them more resilient and, and that we restore them properly. You mentioned the pine bark beetle, and obviously we've invested nearly uh, $300 million in the western states to try to begin the process of removing some of that wood uh, so that we reduce the fire hazard, uh, because it obviously it's pretty significant. Uh, and I think there's an opportunity here for us to link that need with uh, a new opportunity for what I refer to as distributive generation of power, uh, basically localizing our, our, our power uh, production by using that woody biomass to produce heat and energy, uh, perhaps linking it with uh, colleges and universities and public entities uh, to use that wood in, in a more uh, effective way from an environmental standpoint uh, and do a better job of maintaining those forests. Tom Vilsack is U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. He's our guest today with Ambassador Michael Froman at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, meat and dairy are a big part of the carbon equation. Some people say one of the best ways to fight climate change is eat less meat. How does that sit with USDA, which is largely promoting uh, meat and dairy? Well, what we're promoting is is agricultural opportunity. Uh, And here's why. Uh, And I think everybody has to recognize that we all have a stake in the survival and health of rural America. Uh, It's a place where most of our food is produced. It's a good place where most of the surface water is, is impacted. It's the source of most of the energy feedstocks, as we've mentioned. It's a place where we all go to recreate. But it's also a place where 16% of America's population helps to produce nearly 40% of America's military. So a lot of the sons and daughters that grow up in those small towns and on those farms and ranches are are willing to sacrifice for their country. And I think it's partly a a value system that they grew up uh, being exposed to in those rural areas. So you need economic opportunity. For the first time in our history, rural America lost population. It is the place where 85% of persistently poor counties happen to be. It's not Poverty is not limited to inner city. It's also very much in rural areas. So you've got to create economic opportunity. Uh, and so you want a livestock industry because that's a way in which traditionally we've added value uh, to the crops that we grow. But that is not by itself enough. We, As I've said earlier, we've got to complement production agriculture with local and regional food systems, which can include livestock um, and often does. Uh, we've got to complement it with uh, w- with outdoor recreation and new ecosystem markets and proper use of conservation resources, which we're trying to do, and we have to create this bio-based economy. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's a balance. I think it's a, it's a combination. It's not just one solution. It's a diversification for agriculture. It's all sizes of operations of agriculture, and it's different uses of agricultural products. Uh, and the reality is that one of the reasons why we've had record exports is because the rest of the world is very interested in purchasing a lot of the beef and the, and the pork and the, and the poultry that we produce in the United States. So it's an export opportunity. It's not just necessarily uh, being, being Americans that are consuming this. Ambassador Fruman, uh, the Electronic Freedom Foundation said that the Trans-Pacific Partnership puts at risk some of the most fundamental rights that enable access to knowledge. Uh, and I think there's concern that the Trans-Pacific Partnership could be an attempt to revive some of the online patent and protection acts uh, that were unsuccessful with the the uh, SOPA, the Stop Online Privacy Act that, that uh, Google and uh, this big uprising last year. So address those concerns. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you raised that because I, I've seen those reports and I think they are um, really close to 100% wrong. What we're trying to do through TPP is actually create greater openness in the digital economy, allow for free flow of data, uh, encourage countries to uh, ensure that people can get access to the Internet, that they can get access to cross-border services, that their businesses can use cloud computing and some of the latest uh, developments uh, in that area, that they don't impose certain walls around the Internet, that they don't use that as an excuse for censorship. So it's exactly what we're trying to do is to make sure that it's open. Now, you know, we are, uh, we do believe in supporting uh, certain intellectual property rights, but we do that very much in the context of the balance that's already been struck in U.S. law. Now, for example, in U.S. law, we have uh, exceptions and limitations to copyright uh, for various uses. And this is the first trade agreement where we'll be putting forward exceptions and limitations and encouraging other countries to adopt laws that allow for exceptions and limitations on copyright law. So it's a, it's a balanced approach that reflects 
the U.S. law, and at the same time, when it comes to new technologies in the digital economy, we're working to make sure that this is as open as possible. And why is a group like EFF so concerned if it's really as open? I mean, it's hard to reconcile both of those. Well, you know, I think one of the challenges we have here is there is no agreement yet for anybody to focus on. So all we can talk about is what we've proposed. And people are naturally concerned until they see the final result to make sure that we're fighting for their rights and fighting for their interests. And we're doing that. And we're, you know, we're, we're talking to all sorts of different stakeholders on all of these issues. You know, and oftentimes the stakeholders have competing and conflicting interests. But our job is to try and find a balanced approach and then negotiate an agreement with the 11 other countries that reflects the best interests of the U.S. Once the agreement's done and people can see what's actually been agreed to, because, you know, one of the, one of the challenging things about a trade agreement is that nothing's agreed to till everything's agreed to. And usually nothing's agreed to till about 3 a.m. in the morning and the last day of the negotiation. So once it's all done and we can show people exactly all the balances that have been struck, I think people will be able to see that we've done the right thing, including on those issues. Another concern is medications. Uh, one group, Public Citizen, wrote that the uh, deal would strengthen, lengthen, and broaden pharmaceutical monopolies on cancer, heart disease, and other drugs uh, in Asia-Pacific. You know, Congress, back in, in 2007, reached a, a bipartisan compromise on a series of trade issues. They told us what to do on labor, what to do on environment, and what to do on intellectual property rights, including pharmaceuticals. And they gave us direction that there should be a distinction made between uh, countries at lower levels of development to ensure that there could be access to medicines by the poor and countries at higher levels of development who have higher levels of intellectual property rights protection. And it's that kind of approach that we are pursuing through the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We want to make sure that there's access to medicines, that generics can get into the market, particularly in developing countries, as soon as possible, at the same time as we are encouraging innovation in our country, you know, and, and the kinds of innovation that then lead to generic drugs as well. I'd like to ask both of you to comment on this, and we're going to go to audience questions in a minute. Uh, the New York Times reported earlier this year on, I think it was titled America's Wage Pickle, uh, the productivity of American workers has increased dramatically in recent years, and yet wages have been stagnant. So uh, Caterpillar was just one example, recorded uh, record profits, but they had a six-year wage freeze on blue-collar workers. They're kind of an icon of rural uh, America. So I'd like you to talk, both talk to uh, rising productivity but stagnant wages, which some people connect with, with trade deals. First, Ambassador Froman. Well, I think this is a serious issue more generally about the need to ensure that there are uh, increased wages and that the benefits of trade are, are, are broadly shared. Uh, you know, export-related jobs tend to get paid 13 to 18 percent more on average than non-export-related jobs. And so increasing exports and encouraging and having more people in the sector that are taking advantage of these open markets abroad is one way of encouraging higher wage growth. But it's one of the reasons also through our trade agreements that we're trying to level the playing field by raising labor standards in other countries as well so that our workers don't face an, a, an unfair situation of having to compete against workers who don't have to live by, by similar uh, uh, ILO standards. Secretary Vilsack? Biggest concern I have on wages is the disparity between rural wages and the rest of the country. Uh, median family income in rural areas is about $22,000 less than it is in other parts of the country, and that basically explains in part why we have the highest poverty rate we've had in 25 years and why we can continue to have persistent poverty in many rural counties. It's one of the reasons why we created a thing called Strike Force, where we're really focusing with intensive care uh, and direction on these high poverty areas to try to increase economic activity. Uh, we need to rebuild the rural economy. <coughs> we need to basically bring manufacturing back. And one way you do that uh, with a farm bill and the programs that a farm bill could support is creating these new manufacturing opportunities where you can take agricultural waste product and produce something more valuable. Uh, this is a, a, about taking corn cobs and producing plastic uh, that Coca-Cola uses for their plastic bottles. It's about taking switchgrass and converting it into a, uh, a material that substitutes for fiberglass that's stronger but lighter that will allow for more fuel-efficient vehicles. It's about taking uh, literally hog manure and producing asphalt from it uh, that would help uh, – reduce the cost of, uh, of paving roads, believe it or not. That's actually happening in Ohio right now. Um, when you think about the opportunities to take everything we grow, everything we raise, and replicate nature by creating something more valuable and having no waste, if you will, uh, it's, a, it's a tremendous opportunity to bring manufacturing back. And when you do that, you can help complement uh, production agriculture and some of the local regional food systems we talked about earlier. 
There is no waste in uh, nature. Yes, right. people who read Bill McDonough are in, involved in biomimicry. Uh, we're going to include our audience questions. We, I can see you know the line. Uh, we get, I'm not sure we'll get through all of them. I want to encourage you to keep your questions concise and brief. Uh, we'll get through as many as possible. And um, if you have, need some help keeping it brief, then I will uh, be happy to help you keep it on point and brief. Let's include our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, Peter Gisela. Four sentences. Um, Secretary Vilsick, on July 15, President Obama issued a memorandum to the heads of executive departments and agencies on the subject of creating a task force on expanding national service through partnerships to advance government priorities. USDA is a member of this task force. My question, could you provide me the means to contact your representative and encourage this task force to create a website transparency for input from non-government institutions for more effective systemic changes and partnerships. And I hope Ambassador Froman could also encourage the White House towards these requests. Uh, Matt Paul is my communications director. He happens to be in the facility in the building today. He will give you his card, and you can contact him uh, immediately. Actually, you can talk to him right now. Let's have our next question for U.S. <coughs> Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, and Trade Representative Ambassador Michael Froman. Mr. Ambassador, I'm Pat Tibbs. I'm a San Francisco resident. Can you assure us or will you assure us today that you will not sacrifice net neutrality in developing the TPP? Um, you might explain net neutrality. Well, let me, I, I believe I can say yes, uh, but I want to make sure I'm answering the question the right way. What we're seeking is to ensure that there are no undue regulations of the Internet. And certainly that's consistent with net neutrality. And there's nothing in TPP that would run that would run against that. So assuming we're successful in our negotiation and we're able to get 11 other countries to agree to our principles about the digital economy and we're able to get that agreement through Congress, then I can assure you that. Let me just follow up by saying there's actually an ICANN meeting now in Brazil, and, uh, which is the governing body for the Internet, and there's a perception there that some countries are trying to exert more influence over Internet governance. I think that's absolutely right, and that's something we should all be quite concerned about. And one thing, again, just to go to, uh, to the questioner's point, one thing we're trying to do through TPP is exactly counter that by saying that the Internet ought to be open, ought to be free, that there shouldn't be interference in Internet governance. But that requires us to actually be able to get the agreement done and get it through and get it through Congress as well. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Secretary Vilsack, um, I live in East Bay, and uh, George Miller is my congressman. You mentioned water conservation and cover crops, but I didn't hear you say anything about recycled water. And whenever I talk to George Miller about this, he says there are no federal dollars for recycled water, yet Alameda and Contra Costa County throw as much as a billion gallons of recycled water into the bay in one day, and it can be tertiary grade used for agriculture. So why isn't there more money coming from the USDA uh, for use of recycled water in agriculture? Well, uh, I'm not sure that that's not happening. Uh, I think that there are projects that we're helping to fund uh, in using water more efficiently and more effectively and recycling water. Uh, there are uh, a, a wide variety of ways in which we at USDA are, are focused on, on, on renewable sources. Uh, so I'm not sure that it's correct. Ha- having said that, uh, we are – we have a National Institute of Food and Agriculture, which is a competitive grant process, and we are focusing these competitive grants with universities, land-grant universities, on a couple of key areas. And one of those areas is on climate change, and one of it, it one of those areas is on renewable resources. And, and so to the extent that we can get universities engaged in this as well, there's, there's another opportunity for us to expand on the conservation monies that are being spent in this area. Let's have our next question for Secretary Vilsack and Ambassador Froman. Thank you. Um, I have actually two questions. I'll be brief. Um, can, uh, one question. Can you step closer, please? Thank, thank you. you. Could you, um, could the Secretary of Agriculture please comment on, um, with regard to the QR codes? It seems to me that then the people that aren't um, owning smartphones would be prevented from the knowledge of what's contained, for example, in products, if, um, if I understood your comment on that. Sure, and that's why I think it would be helpful and, and probably appropriate for the grocers to basically have available uh, scanners that could be used by those who don't have smartphones. I mean, the point of this is not to prevent somebody from getting information. The point of it is to get information to folks in a way that is not uh, judgmental, uh, which I think a lot of folks on the other side of this issue have concerns about. 
Uh, so it wouldn't be denying people access. There would be availability. The technology would be available, whether it was your own phone or some kind of scanning material at the, at the grocery store. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Uh, Jim Dorincott, a Vietnam veteran. And, and I have to say, you know, as a veteran who risks his life for democracy, I'm, I'm very concerned about the lack of public accountability in terms of decisions that are made in these investor state courts. I mean, it seems to me that that is the opposite of what democracy should be, where courts made up of corporate people can decide whether our environmental laws that we decide democratically to enact to protect our people can be overridden by these courts and that we have no appeal process. Thank you. This seems to me something that makes this unacceptable. Ambassador Froman. Well, first of all, thank you for your service. Let me answer that question directly because there's nothing in TPP and nothing in investor state that actually requires a government to undo a regulation that it thinks is appropriate. There are a number of ways of dealing with that. Now, we've never lost an investor state dispute settlement challenge in the United States, and that's because our regulations go through a fair and transparent and non-discriminatory process. Our regulatory agencies don't adopt regulations in order to discriminate against foreigners. But that's not true so much around the world. There are lots of places around the world where American firms and American workers are being adversely affected because a government will adopt a regulation, not because there's a legitimate public health or uh, safety or environmental reason, but as a disguised barrier to trade. And that's what investor state is really all about. It's one reason we've never lost a case in this country. It's another reason why it's been an important protection for American firms to be able to, to, to use in, in other, and not just American firms, but firms from one developing country to another developing country to use in other contexts. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Thank you. Ellen Schaefer, co-director of the Center for Policy Analysis on Trade and Health, CPAP. And we, the U.S. actually has lost not an investor state case, but a, a WTO case challenging our tobacco control regulations, uh, the, trying to prevent use from being addicted to clove cigarettes in the U.S. Tobacco use kill is the leading preventable cause of death in the U.S. in the world today, killing 1,200 Americans a day. Um, we have worked with uh, elected officials, uh, tobacco control groups, public health groups, and medical groups all over the U.S. who are besieging the U.S. to support Malaysia's position that we carve out these tobacco control regulations and tobacco completely from the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Transatlantic Partnership. The U.S. Your Office, instead of strengthening our original proposal to try to deal with this question, has now come up with a proposal that's been termed by Maine State legislators as completely without legal significance. What will it take for the U.S. to lead on tobacco control? As well, in fact, we are leading do? on tobacco control, and I, I, I'm very glad you asked that question because we're the first country that's put forward tobacco into a trade agreement. We were the first one to table a proposal on this. This is the first agreement that will ever that has ever mentioned tobacco specifically as a product precisely for the reasons that you've said. We put out a proposal. We got a lot of feedback, including from tobacco control advocates who are concerned about elements of our proposal, and we've been evolving that proposal ever since. And we're continuing to work that in the negotiation. It's one of the topics that's currently being negotiated in the negotiation, and we're working with Malaysia and other countries to ensure that we come out with something that's appropriate on exactly the issue that you said, while at the same time doesn't create a precedent that could be used for other agricultural products or other products that are not intended to be covered by it. If I could just unpack that a little bit, is the concern that if a city or state makes rules about tobacco, that some other country can challenge those under under free trade rules? Is that it? Well, I think the concern is that we want to make sure that whether it's the FDA or its counterparts in other countries, or as you say, at the state or local level, have the authority to adopt anti-smoking or tobacco control measures that are consistent with public health objectives. That's what we want to make sure that they that they have, and that's what we're trying to do through this agreement. Ambassador Michael Froman is the U.S. Trade Representative. Let's have our next question of the Commonwealth Club. Joe Brenner, Center for Policy Analysis on Trade and Health. The question for Ambassador Froman, related question. San Francisco and California have taken effective action to protect public health and to reduce tobacco-related disease and death. When California attempted to ban the carcinogen NTBE some years ago from gasoline, a Canadian company filed a trade challenge against the United States, suing the United States for millions of dollars under NAFTA, under the investor state provisions of NAFTA, at a tremendous cost of time and resources of the United States, and had a chilling effect stopping other states 
from taking NTB out across the country. The United States is proposing the same investor state rights to corporations, which would give them the right to challenge local tobacco control measures. Why? Well, actually, that's not true, I'm afraid. Uh, and, again, this little, once the agreement is out, hopefully you'll be able to see it. But we've added a number of safeguards to our investor state dispute settlement proposal precisely to deal with the kind of problems you have, including uh, safeguards where attorney's fees are, are, are reimbursed, where there's expedited treatment of dispute settlement, where the states can come together and direct the arbitral tribunal of how to come out, and where, and, and, and to the previous questioner's point, where we can deal with some tobacco-specific elements of it in a way that's never been dealt with before. The case that you mentioned, of course, is one that we won. We didn't lose because we've never lost an investor state dispute settlement case. So we've, we've never lost a case, but we're adding safeguards anyway to ensure that our health and, and environmental authorities can adopt whatever regulations they think is appropriate, consistent with science, to deal with their issues. Let's have our next question okay. the Commonwealth Club. Yes, I'm Judith Finch, and I'm a constituent of George Miller, and I'd like to address this uh, question particularly to Ambassador Froman. Um, I'm very concerned about, uh, and I, I would like you to uh, address, I, I know you talked about many stakeholders in that, but it's been my understanding that most of them have been uh, corporate stakeholders. And I'm, I'd particularly like you to, to address the idea of the fast track, something that was introduced uh, originally by, I think, um, President Nixon. And uh, I understand by this that, that the Congress will only have, after a bill is introduced, who have 90 days, which would probably not be enough time for hearings. And how... Uh, more of the people can be. We can't really uh, communicate with our uh, congressmen people if we don't know more about it. I've seen very little about it in the in the mainstream press, thank, and thank I'm wondering you. about that. So once a trade agreement is completed, it, it, and it's, it's immediately published, it's published within usually weeks of when it's completed, it will sit out there for months before Congress votes on it. What the trade promotion authority process does is say, once it's formally introduced to Congress, there's a period of time and there's a process, including hearings. And there have been hearings on every trade agreement. And there's plenty of time for the, both the public, stakeholder groups from, from nonprofit organizations to others, and of course members of Congress to, to be able to, to opine on it. I should say, by the way, you know, every member of Congress has access to the negotiating text. We view the members of Congress as the people's representatives. And any member of Congress who wants to see negotiating texts can see it. We go up, we show it to them, we walk them through it, we answer questions, we devote staff to make sure that, that they have any follow-up questions that we can answer for them, and we work with them before we table any text in our relevant committees of jurisdiction to make sure we've got their input uh, as well. So we welcome a robust, open debate about this. We've been more open in terms of having more stakeholder events, a broader range of stakeholders, not just our cleared advisors, which do, by the way, include environmental groups, labor unions, public health groups, and others, but a wider range of stakeholders participate in all of our rounds. We're talking about trade and agriculture at the Commonwealth Club. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi. I have questions for both of you. First of all, why is food that is too radioactive to be allowed for sale in Fukushima, Japan, sold in the USA? And um, the scientifically based position on GMOs is that they are a known health hazard. So informed people no longer feed their families corn, soy, canola, or cottonseed ingredients unless they are organic, nor bovine growth hormone, nor aspartame poison. So I want to ask you, do you feed your families those poisons, or are you in denial about them? Okay, Secretary Vilsack. But waiting uh, to get you in the game here. There you go. Yeah, no, no question about that. Uh, obviously, there's a disagreement uh, with the questioner. I, I, honestly, I don't think that there are scientific studies. I've seen a, a portfolio of 660 studies that have looked at this issue of, of known hazards and safety with GMOs. Uh, there's no reputable uh, study in, that I have seen that suggests that there's a health hazard. Uh, my family does consume them. I consume them. I'm still here. Um, and, and, and I will also say that the world is faced with a fairly serious set of challenges in terms of feeding the global population. Uh, and if we do not embrace science and if we don't understand the importance of, of science in agriculture, it will be extremely difficult for us to meet that challenge. So uh, as, far as, the, as, as far as food is concerned, I would just simply say that food that comes into the United States has to meet the same safety standards as we set for food that's processed in the United States. <laughs> and I, I am, 
unaware of the fact that there are, are, are hazardous foods coming into this country from Japan. I'm just happy to check that out. Sound, that's an, uh, an FDA issue. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration basically is, is uh, responsible for inspecting those. Uh, if, if it's fish, uh, inspecting fish, we inspect meat, poultry, and processed eggs at USDA, but I'm happy to check that out. But I know that we have an equivalency agreement and a requirement uh, at USDA. Nothing comes in in meat, poultry, or processed eggs unless it's equivalent to the safety standards that we set in the United States. On GMOs, quick footnote, some people would say that it's difficult to do studies, that a lot of the studies that have been done have been industry-funded. Some researchers say it's difficult to get access to, to do those studies. Well, <laughs> You could find 150 million reasons to, to, to have a discussion about scientific studies, but the reality is I've not seen a reputable scientific study that suggests and indicates right. what the particular hazard is. All right, that's number one. Number two, what we do know is that we are faced with a serious challenge that unless we figure out how to grow more with less, how we figure out how to, how to use less water, how we figure out how to grow food with these uh, changing weather patterns that we talked about earlier, that we're going to confront a major problem in humankind. We've got to increase food production by 70% in the next 40 years. That's the equivalent of the same amount of technology and advancement in agriculture in 40 years as we've had in the preceding 10,000 years. So that's why we're encouraging investment in research. It's why we want the Farm Bill to pass so that we have additional opportunities to leverage uh, research dollars uh, so that we can continue to meet this challenge and have America be at the forefront and do it in a, in a safe and, and a sustainable way. In climate change world, we may need those drought-resistant crops. Let's have our next audience question. Yeah, uh, my name is Damian Luzo. I just, uh, I, I guess, you know, maybe we haven't lost a specific case, you know, if an outside company has come into the United States and say, well, I don't like that, you know. I, I don't know a lot of where they're actually coming in and trying to do a lot of things here where we're actually having that much of a problem. But when we're actually going in there, uh, such as Texas-based um, oil and, or, and gas company going in and suing the entire nation of Canada for $250 million because they happen to pass a fracking moratorium, um, it kind of just begs the question, like, well, we're already having these talks with Chinese officials. They've been struggling to do fracking there. They're going to be coming in here to do fracking in California. Uh, one would imagine with this kind of trade agreement. So, so let, let's wrap what it are up we there. going to do with? Um, yeah, uh, I guess my main question is just why doesn't the actual public, the people, the sovereign people of this nation, have a say in this trade agreement? Ambassador Froman. Well, uh, obviously they do, and they do both directly and through their members of Congress. And and I start I start from the premise that. Regulations, you know, in no country, we want to make sure countries, whether it's the FDA or whether it's USDA or others, can adopt the regulations that they think are appropriate, and as their democratic representatives, that they think are appropriate for health, safety, and the environmental protection of our country, and no trade agreement is going to undermine that. And that's our fundamental premise. Now, we, we want to make sure that those are the same kind of premises that are followed around the world, and that people are engaging in Regulation in a way that addresses their legitimate public health and safety and, and environmental protection and does so, you know, with, with, based on science, based on evidence and does so not as a disguised barrier to trade. And, you know, I wish every country had exactly the same kind of regulatory system that we did where we have comments and, 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 and participation by our public where people can make public comments where the regulatory agencies have to justify their regulations based on evidence and science. But that doesn't currently exist. We're working with other countries to help strengthen their capacity to do regulation as well. From us, we're trying to use trade policy as a way of, of, of raising standards overall, labor, environment, access to medicines, intellectual property rights. Those are core principles for us as we engage in these negotiations. You know, and, and that's what we're trying to do. I mean, uh, I won't speak nearly as eloquently as Secretary Vilsack about what motivates him. But when I travel around the country and see people who are, you know, being put to work, hiring additional people, raising wages, because we've managed to open a market for them or ensure that there's a level playing field to make sure that there's no obstacle to their exports and the fruit of their labor that they're getting, the fruits of their labor, to me, that's what this is all about. And when I travel in Africa, and I spend a fair amount of time working on African development and see how impassioned 
uh, African leaders and African up-and-coming entrepreneurs are about the role that trade can play in their development, I want to make sure that markets are open so that we have some chance of using trade and investment as important tools for a development here at home and around the world. I want to end by asking you a question. I ask a lot of people who sit on this stage here with me, what are you doing to manage your own personal carbon footprint? Secretary Vilsack. We are in, in – we just purchased a home, and we're in the process of, of making that more, far more energy efficient. Um, we are focused at USDA on uh, significantly increasing the efficiency of our buildings. Uh, we have a major pro, uh, major initiative uh, at USDA to try to make us far more energy efficient and to use less energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we actually have a, a, a monthly reporting process on how that's how that's do, that's going. So th- there are a lot of different ways, uh, and obviously uh, we're very much in, interested and invested in uh, creating tools for farmers, in particular, to know how best to use conservation to reduce uh, their carbon footprint. We just uh, uh, launched a thing called Comet Farm, which allows people to actually take a look at conservation practices and quantify the the, the result of those conservation practices in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And we believe that we can create ecosystem markets where people will invest in conservation uh, in order to meet a a regulatory responsibility they may have in an industry uh, if they are able to measure and verify and quantify a conservation results. So there's an awful lot of activity, both personally and professionally. Ambassador Froman. Well, I'll just, have to, I'll just answer the personal, which is we, we moved to a place so that my son could walk to school and uh, we could get rid of a car and reduce our carbon footprint accordingly. Our thanks to uh, U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack and Michael Froman, U.S. Trade Representative. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for joining us. The free podcast of this and other Climate One programs are available in the iTunes store. Thank you for coming today to Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you.